my name is Lydia. This is Carla. And I'm Sam. And this is... New Librarians Allowed. Yeah, this is another episode that we are recording, and today we also have a guest. So we've invited Sam Popovich to speak to us about technology in libraries. A pretty big topic, <laughs> but lots to get into. So I guess this conversation emerged out of a publication of a book very recently by Library Juice Press called The Politics of, Th of Theory and the Practice of Critical Librarianship. Um, so Sam wrote a chapter for this book. <laughs> Everyone will order it and read it in the library community. We know that already. Um, but it was a long process, and it's finally here. So we're, we want to celebrate that, and we want to talk, I guess, a little bit about that yeah. chapter. I guess I'm, I'm curious about... Um I'm curious about your process of, of actually writing it, if, sure. if you want to talk about that a little bit, but, but also just tell us about what you wrote. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so it must have been early in 2016, maybe spring of 2016, uh, Library Juice Press put out a call for papers for this book. Um, and I had already been uh, thinking about politics and technology in libraries for a while. Um, I'm a systems librarian. I've been a systems librarian for about 10 years and had only in the last few years started to bring in my more political interests into thinking about the technology that I was working with. So um, in fact, when I proposed a chapter for this, um, it was less about technology. It was more about the politics of libraries. Um, and what I initially wanted was to write a kind of primer of Marxism for librarians. Um, so what what's the dialectic? What's historical materialism? What's um, the fetishism of commodities and reification? What are those Marxist bits that I think it's important to know and would be a basis for any other kind of Marxist thinking? So in talking with the editors, um, Karen Nicholson and Maura Seal, uh, they, they thought that it was actually missing a certain amount of librarianship stuff. It was missing a more concrete connection to libraries. Um, and my concrete connection to libraries is technology. That's that's the area that I work in. So as I was working through um, drafting the chapter, it evolved a little bit from being this kind of put everything that I can think of about Marxism and libraries on the page to um, what are specific library technology focuses that I can use. So it ended up... Um, it ended up having sort of Marxism sections and library technology sections. And uh, working with Karen and Mora was, was really fantastic for uh, after the first draft was submitted in um, October of 2016, having some back and forths of like real structural edits. So how, how would it be better to organize this chapter um, to make those connections clear, to make it not feel like it was two separate papers jammed together into one chapter. Um, so there were a few back and forths like that um, that I found really helpful. Was it daunting and stressful and exhilarating at the same time? <laughs> um, I, I've been through some some pretty tough peer review things in the past. I, uh, I wrote an article as part of my master's degree on film music and submitted it to a film music uh, journal and had the sort of stereotypical reviewer number two thing where they hated it and ripped it apart so badly that I just withdrew it from publication. It was terrible. So I was a little bit trepidatious when I started working with Karen and Mora, but it was fine. Um, it was actually really great. So their, their comments on the chapter were always constructive. There were moments when we might not necessarily been on the same page right away. I wasn't sure what they were asking about, but there, it was a very approachable collegial way to work. So. Nice. so, so of course the next step is a full book by Sam, correct? Well, maybe something like that might <laughs> be book, in the works. Full book series. So what were some of your goals with this chapter? What did you want the readers to take away and understand? I think the big thing for me is the idea that culture, including institutions like libraries or cultural manifestations like particular technologies, grow out of particular economic and social foundations, which is, which is a fairly uncontroversial thing to say in Marxist circles, but isn't necessarily how we typically think about things um, in librarianship, for sure. So what I really wanted to explore was this idea that 
um, technology, and especially technology within a library context, comes out of particular organizations of relations of production. So when we think about technology, we have to think about what the underlying economic relations are, which include relations of domination, relations of exploitation, and explore those from the point of view of the history of, of library technology within the history of technology more generally. Does that make sense? That's a bit of a dense way to put it. I can tease it out a bit if you want. Sure, maybe just a bit. So essentially sure. that there are histories. There's, yeah. It's been shaped <laughs> by forces that are invisible to us. So mm -hmm. I, I should back up and say that your chapter is called Ruthless Criticism of All That Exists, Marxism, Technology, and Library Work. Essentially that there's a lot going on that usually we don't necessarily mm -hmm. even think about critically. And, and the, I guess, you know, in our conversations in the, pa in the past, you, you've talked about the, the power of Marxism is to make it visible, to make us dig into it and realize that we take a lot for granted mm -hmm. and bring that history to life, right? Unearthing it. Yeah. So technology and, and technological innovation holds a particular important place in Marx's economic theory, which is that According to the labor theory of value, only human labor can create new value. But in order to cut costs, capitalists are looking to technological solutions, which will allow them to pay labor less, essentially, in a nutshell. But technological change also is, and has been perhaps since, since the Industrial Revolution, technological change has a cultural component as well, right? Um, as Greg Weston-Smith was talking about earlier, we live with these technologies, we interact with them, uh, we shape them and they shape the lives that we have too. So there's, in, in sort of kind of very strict Marxist terms, they occupy a position within the base, the economic foundation of society, but they also occupy a position in the superstructure, which is the cultural side. And you're right, all of these things have histories, but technology is not something some, something that simply sits there that we interact with and has a kind of neutral position and we can choose how we decide to relate to it, which is where I start the chapter with this idea that um, technology simply sits there and it's up to us how it's employed. I'm trying to constantly come back to the idea that technology, because of its relationship to the capitalist mode of production, which involves the constant increase of the exploitation of labor, technology has this connection which is independent of the way we choose to work with it. And of course, it begins in school and families. It's it's all around us. It's mm -hmm. you know when when we talk about I guess choosing it for work, right? So as if switching between one tool or another, one computer system, one software license, whatever. It it's it's already too late by then in a sense. Like mm -hmm. we've we've been shaped by it through the school system, I even in our families. Um, in entertainment, like everywhere, in all in all areas of our society. Yeah, and th there's that that connects it to another piece that I'm interested in, and which is probably the research I'm going to be looking into next, which is the role of ideology. So uh, Louis Althusser talks about um, the way that ideology helps capitalist society reproduce itself. So the reason that workers are workers from one generation to the next and have the kind of culture that makes them go to work on time, makes them do a particular kind of work and not revolt, and keeps them pacified with respect to these exploitative conditions. Um, he talks about school, for example, teaching kids not only facts and figures, not only geography and, and particular disciplines, but teaches them how and why they have to show up at a particular place on time, how and why they need to sit quietly at desks, um, how and why they relate to authority it inculcates within them particular ways of interacting in the world. And I would argue that libraries do the same thing. And in this case, academic libraries and public libraries are different. Um, academic libraries have a particular ideological mission which involves the creation of particular kinds of subjects. Um, so it involves knowledge and education. Public libraries quite often have a component of inculcating relationships with the state relationships to private property, um, right? Why do we have to bring books back on time, for example? Why are there fines if we don't bring them back on time? Those have material reasons, but they also have an ideological function. 
so I think that's kind of how I connect technology to librarianship is that both of these things have ideological components in addition to the actual function that they have in society. So I'm interested in, in pursuing this ideological question a little bit more. And I guess the purpose of this book, so there are chapters on systems librarianship and indigenous librarianship and public, and the authors are writing from a variety of perspectives, but the idea is to build this conversation about, I guess, yeah, being critical, being critical of the profession mm -hmm. and, and the roles. And is that is that fair to say? It is. I, 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 I don't want to speak for, for Karen and Mora, but I, I feel as if this book came along at the right time to kind of crystallize a certain way, a certain critical way of positioning ourselves with respect to librarianship. Um, so th there's all sorts of other things. There's the CritLib hashtag on Twitter, which has regular Twitter conversations about various aspects of the library world. And I mean, there's been critical thinking around librarianship going back to, at the very least, the agitation that led to the Library Bill of Rights in 1939. But this feels like a particular moment where criticism of dominant library discourse is maybe coming together as a more formal thing. And I think this book is an aspect of that. And I think it's important to point out one of the, one of the criticisms that can be leveled at um, people who talk about these things a lot is that we, we're ignoring all the positive parts of the library, right? right? The, the, the good things that libraries do, the good things that technologies can do. And I think that for me, at least, I recognize the positive aspects of library work, or I wouldn't be a librarian. I recognize the positive aspects of technology, or I wouldn't be a systems librarian. But I find that um, the discourse is dominated so much by the, the, the value-free, neutral, classically liberal model of um, libraries doing good work. And that this, this feeds into the, the vocational awe piece um, that, uh, that was written a little while ago. We need vocational law. We, we ought to believe that our public institutions perform these functions in society. But we can't do that at the expense of really critically taking a look at the other things that they're involved with, um, often unconsciously. So can you break down a little bit more talking about library work specifically? So your focus is on actually the, the labor that happens in libraries, mm -hmm. not necessarily like the people coming in or whatever, sure. but actual library workers. So what are some of the things that you're talking about in, in terms of library labor and, and technologies? One, one area that I've, that I've talked a lot about is, is sort of teasing out the idea. So libraries are not typically considered capitalist organizations. They're not corporations. They're not companies. And yet, when we bring in new technologies, quite often that is part of a larger process of either de-skilling, deprofessionalization, or cutting staff. So a, a really good example of this is the decline in the size of cataloging departments over the last probably 15, 20 years. That is often done through a logic of cutting costs because we now have technology to, do, to, to help with some of that stuff. Efficiency. Efficiency, right? So even though libraries aren't capitalist organizations specifically, we're not technically out to make profits. What I'm interested in is the idea that the same logic that applies to capitalist organizations where they're going to use technological innovation to cut labor costs also applies to libraries, that people who are making the decisions within libraries are also subject to these same forces. And, and to me, that those are ideological forces that people tend not to recognize or see as common sense activities, right? Who would be against efficiency? Why wouldn't we? Um, downsize or slim down our cataloging departments if we can do that. And part of this is bound up in all sorts of narratives around technology as labor-saving. So automation frees us up to do other kinds of work. That's one of the dominant narratives around technological innovation, when in fact what often happens is those people are just out of work, right? They, they, they go to work for OCLC as catalogers at probably less pay and with fewer benefits than if they were in a university cataloging department, for example. So that work does not necessarily go away, it's displaced or transformed. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are the argument, the classic way it's positioned is taking away the tedium and repetitiveness, mm -hmm. which is unarguable benefit of technology. In the early days, and to some degree, it still happens, 
a doorway into this conversation of labor, certainly digital librarianship, has been, or the metaphors of magic, right? So mm. misunderstanding how much digital labor goes into websites, digital repositories, unique experiences, but that there's humans behind it, that countless hours of check-in metadata mm -hmm. and proofreading, it doesn't just appear. It's not technology didn't create it, but humans did. I, I guess would that be part of this labor discourse? And Absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the things that in the developed world, you know, call it the global north or the global northwest um, or the, the centers of capitalism, one of the ways that we talk about these things is of a transition to immaterial labor, right? That more and more of us will be involved in more intellectual work, more creative work. And one of the things that, that I'm interested in, in focusing on and make sure, making sure we don't lose track of is all of that stuff, all of our amazing augmented realities, technologies, our um, ways of automating tedious work out of existence are built upon still very industrialized, exploited labor in other parts of the world. So the minerals that are used in your phone are mined in Africa. The phones are assembled using dirt cheap, high, highly exploitative labor in China, for example. That the, the immaterial part that we have the luxury or privilege of thinking about our work in the developed world or the centers is still based upon very material industrialized conditions of oppression in other parts of the world. It's just invisible. It's, it's, it's invisible to us, mm -hmm. right? It's elsewhere. It's, it's, it's put out of the frame. And this is all part of the discussions that, that I think critical librarianship is at least attempting to mitigate. We're attempting to make sure that we don't lose sight of those things, make sure that those things aren't invisible to us. And I do want to mention, um, uh, a, a really great book about all of this is Nick Dyer Witherford's book called Cyber Proletariat, which came out, I think, in 2015, where he talks about the supply chains all across the world, the ways that modern technologies, cybernetics, automation, artificial intelligence are connected to these horrible conditions in the global south and the global east. So that, that's that's a really good book to check out. Just to go back to your point about the logic of efficiency certainly watching Zizek videos help, has helped me understand how does he put it efficiency is just making capital circulate faster mm -hmm. yeah. in and of itself there's no inherent value to us humans of making I mean sure yes we don't want to washing dishes by hand versus washing dishes in a dishwasher and doing laundry etc and yet is there not a pleasure in washing dishes by hand? You know, mm -hmm. what is it about, you know, what is my experience of doing, of performing that labor? That's my life, right? So I guess what I want to say is a lot of our library work with humans, the, the most meaningful, the most memorable, what we always talk about, you know, the mm -hmm. story times with children, the interactions with customers, they're inefficient in a sense that they take time. Mm -hmm. I guess we should celebrate inefficiency sometimes. There's, right? there's, there's a kind of classic response to that, which is if we were all about inefficiency, which is all about getting the maximum output for the minimum input, then you would feed your kids the least amount of food you possibly could, spend the least amount of time with them, but expect everything else, all the love and chores and everything like that back in return. That's not how human beings work. And I, I always try to take an expanded view of labor as not just the work that we do at our jobs, but cooking, for example, is labor. For those of us who like to cook, do you really want to, you want to take your time with it. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily want efficiency in cooking or you would be done in five minutes and you'd make something tasteless and it would be horrible. You don't want conversations to take the least amount of effort and be over as soon as possible some conversations, sure, you do. But but there's all sorts of activities in our lives where efficiency is not uh, a value at all. One of the things that capitalism is always trying to do is apply values of efficiency to everything. Because, as you say, that's where profit lies. That's where capitalist circulation gains its momentum. And, you know, it's it's almost impossible to resist it in, in a, a hugely developed society like ours. And I don't, I don't have any illusions that writing a book chapter is actually going to materially help people to resist it. But at least critical librarianship might help people 
think about these things differently and then maybe make different um, decisions in the very constrained space they have in their lives. What does resistance look like? Oh, everyone asks me that. (laughs) Everyone always asks me that. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, I do think there's a threshold. I don't think everything can be resistance. That There was a discussion recently about, you know, if you use social justice terms as your example search in information literacy classes, that that's a form of resistance. I think the threshold needs to be higher than that. But I don't think that it has to be restrained to the Maoist view of, you know, protected people's war. Um, there has to be something in between those two things that qualifies as resistance. Yeah, it's not an either or. No. We're doing everything without paying attention to it mm-hmm. or we're totally resisting. I think resistance does end up being very of the moment and very situational and relational. So it it's probably impossible to say in general this these kinds of things would qualify as resistance. But if you're talking about a particular person in a particular meeting with a particular other employee, then what counts as resistance in that instance may be different than somewhere else. You know, I, I think I think moment to moment there are relationships at work and in your broader life which which can take on an aspect of resistance where they might not take that aspect on in a different context. So it's it's a bit of a cop-out. I don't really have a, a good answer to that. I, I think people want an answer, and I it's an important question. I would love to have an answer, but it's a really complicated question. I actually feel really good with that answer, though, because okay. if, if you're thinking about, let's say, resistance just broadly. So today, mm-hmm. for example, is... Students are marching for their lives. Sure. It's the March for the Lives today. Yeah. And asking, well, okay, what what does this look like? All of the Me Too things that have happened recently, all mm-hmm. of the recent movements and recent protests we've had, the thing that seems to come out all the time is like, well, how do you fix it? If I can't fix it, I won't do anything. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, slamming people who are speaking out on Twitter about mm-hmm. their experiences. Oh, you're just talking on Twitter. That's not doing anything. But I think you're right to, to say, you know, it, is, it isn't necessarily one solution. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's how, do we, how do we deal with things on a day-to-day basis and also watch for those opportunities yeah. for bigger change to happen. And I think there's a danger in, in saying that there are solutions that are going to be clear-cut. That there's, a, there's a danger in uh, people then focusing on those and not focusing on other areas. There's also the fact that capitalism is very, very good at recuperating those movements towards itself, right? So Me Too is interesting because the place where it's blown up the most is in this huge system of commodity production and is likely to turn around and be used to sell more movies, right? So it's, I think with with resistance, you're constantly having to question how is what I'm doing, which is valid and valuable, still likely to get brought back into the capitalist fold and used to promote the same ideology or the same relationships? As has happened again and again with previous forms mm-hmm. of resistance mm-hmm. and attempting to carve out space within society mm-hmm. for, I'm thinking of you know the 60s and the 70s, which has transformed into more products and commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of Kendall Jenner's Pepsi commercial. That's what I'm exactly. Right yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And and Marx has a fantastic image of this in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, where he talks about the actual things that are helping to produce the revolution. So those actual moments of real resistance as opposed to resistance that is recuperated. They're sometimes above ground, right? They sometimes are moments of resistance, perhaps like something like Me Too, but then they get recuperated by capitalism and they're forced back underground. And he he uses the image of a mole, right? So it's sometimes it's above ground, sometimes it's it's below ground. Michael Hart uses the image, image of a river, which which might flow underground at certain points of its course. With the idea being that that we shouldn't be discarding these movements, even if they seem to fail or even if they get recuperated, they're still part of a revolutionary or resistance tradition or trend, if you like, that we kind of have to hope will eventually uh, result in real change or a different society. I want to add two points to this. So I'm an immigrant, so I, I still have that lens to learn in this Canadian society. But this idea of, 
what is the one thing, what is the three top things we can do? Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's our culture. It's efficient, Lydia. Yeah. Give Listicles. me the one thing. Give me the one or three things that I can do. <laughs> it's it's very convenient and comforting to expect the culture to sort of come up with that. And I guess the consumable, right? The mm-hmm. the knowing what to do with direct impact and, and change. And the instant gratification. Whereas just as washing dishes and playing with your kids and interacting with a person in the library is inefficient in terms of production, but that's what our life is made of. Those mm-hmm. are the things we remember. Um, I guess, again, I'll, I'll go back to Zizek, and you can think whatever you want of him, but he, I, he's helped me understand this to some degree in saying some of the most powerful things we can do is think, not, don't act. So don't put into action immediately, but just taking that time to think, to sit with those uncomfortable ideas, mm-hmm. and it's frustrating. And, and of course we want change, right? Change mm-hmm. implies people doing stuff and things being differently, but it begins with thinking and acknowledging. So I'm not saying that Zizek is the answer and that that's the whole paradox, right? Is that he doesn't give you a solution. And this is the challenge of the 21st century is digital, you know, we are all implicated in the web, Mm -hmm. in interconnectedness, in trade networks, in relying on minerals from Africa. But we do need to allow for space for thinking, for talking, for experiencing, and valorizing and making that, I guess, valued. Mm -hmm. In in the foreword to the book, uh, Emily Drabinsky asks the question, why does the word theory sometimes provoke a reaction, right? Why are are people afraid of it? Why do people not want to engage in it? And I think uh, I I talk a little bit in the book chapter about um, Hannah Arendt's book on the human condition talks about how the contemplative life was considered uh, of higher value in Greek and Roman society. But that at a certain point, that, that got flipped around and practical activity was considered more important and better. And, and that seems certainly to be part of the capitalist life that we live in, um, that, that we don't want to or we can't for a whole bunch of valid reasons or we've been taught that we're unable to engage in contemplation, thinking, theorizing, uh, trying to understand the world that we're in and get and preferences given to, yeah, you're right, that immediate activity because it's more efficient, because you're not wasting time with these questions that don't actually matter. You, you want to jump to something that's going to produce. You want to be productive, which, which carries a whole freight of capitalist uh, connotations of its own. I'm thinking about some conversations we had this week um, in the public library about um, social work and outreach workers and really stressing the importance, and we've seen this kind of flow into our own customer service principles, I guess, about relationship-based work. Mm. So the idea is that, you know, and, and the, the times that I was listening to them talk about this, relationship-based work, what does it mean? So they're you know, not needing to have a specific outcome yeah. in every conversation. So it's enough to say hi to someone over the course of three weeks because maybe then that person will come in and, and talk to them. And I guess while I was listening to this, I kept trying to think of like, well, what is the opposite of that? Because it seems so natural in what we talk about now in, in a public library setting to, you know, not have to demand that someone is doing x y and z to be in the space to really be approaching people not just in transactional Mm -hmm. settings or for a particular purpose or outcome but just to be a person with another person in the space so yeah i i think of that too in community work as well because that's relationship based Mm -hmm. in a sense that you will never have rarely will have immediate results from a single meeting or conversation and i try to take a long-term view of that Mm -hmm. and even if not you know projects sometimes don't pan out or priorities don't always line up however i try to take the long-term view of having multiple interactions with that organization individual however i I guess that logic comes in in terms of logging it, documenting it. How do I show that something, ha- you know, those immaterial what is the outcomes? Yes. Well, what is it, the outcome? It comes back to right. We have we we in libraries have now a very pragmatic, practical 
injunction or exhortation to prove our value to our parent institutions, whether it's the municipality or the university. And, and on the face of it, that seems, of course, we would do that, right? Why wouldn't we do that, right? Why would they pay for something that they can't see the value of? But, and this is how insidiously the capitalist logic of efficiency comes in, that means you have to have concrete outcomes that you can use to prove your value. Um, you have to have assessment, and assessment has to have measurables. Um, and so just that idea of proving our value, which seems like a pretty good idea on the face of it, once you start picking away at it and figuring out what that actually probably means, then it it becomes more dangerous. And it does mean that um, there is pressure, possibly not strong pressure, possibly not uh, conscious or tangible pressure, but there's pressure nonetheless to, if you have to choose between something that has a direct concrete outcome and something that is relational and doesn't have something measurable to come out of it, you're going to pick the one that has the concrete outcome. And so it drives a kind of way of thinking and a way of engaging in the work that we're doing that quietly over time means that we become a particular kind of institution, whether or not that's what we wanted to do in the first place. So it's interesting, we began talking about technology, <laughs> but this has been very human, very broad about experience of work and life. And that's one thing I'm, you know, I'm going to say it here on record that I appreciate about Sam is that you are not interested in technology in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Technology for its own sake, for the systems. You're not a geek for the bits and bytes, but you try to find the application, the implication, right? Mm -hmm. The context of what is it for? Because it's here for a reason. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think I think that. It's, it's interesting. Um, that goes back a long way with me, where in elementary school, we would choose between, we could either have a gym class or we could have a computer class. And even then, even back then, you know, in grade three or whatever, I felt like the, the computer was in some way dehumanizing, right? If, if you if you're going to compare it to a gym class where we we're going to go run around and have fun, you were going to go sit at the desk, you were going to interact with this machine, and it was somehow different. Um, and I got into computer programming um, kind of similarly when we first got our first computer in 93, and it didn't do very much. You know, you typed into it, you printed it out. There was no internet back then. And I wanted it to do more. I wanted. I, I felt that if we were going to be giving all of this uh, time and attention to this box, that it should be doing more. And so I started to learn a little bit of computer programming. And, and that's held, that's that stood me in good stead in terms of finding a job in libraries and finding a niche where... Um, there was work that I could do, but that's never meant that I wasn't critical of, of the work that I was doing and the technology. And I think that that's the important piece going back to what I was saying earlier. It's important to appreciate the benefits that we're accruing from technology and technological advancement, but we can't stop remembering that we're a society of human beings. We're not a society of machines. Um, and and it's, it's kind of incumbent on us. It's a, our responsibility to not lose sight of that fact and do whatever we can to try to maintain a human society rather than a machine society. And you argue that capitalist logic makes us forget that, makes us treat mm -hmm. humans as objects. Isn't that the whole point you know, in writing of Marx? Yep. Sort of dehumanizing the, tr the transformation of very complex creatures that we are into machines for exchange or it, it because because the social relationships are exploitative it's it's in capitalists it's in capitalism's interest to make those uh hidden from us um and one of the ways that it does that is through marx calls it uh fetishism lukacs calls it reification which is where through the process of um, a particular thing coming into being, so technology or a commodity or money, what is in fact a relationship between people, say say if I was to buy a book from you for cash, we would see the movement of, of that cash as the important movement. So there's a relationship between exchanging a book for money um, when in fact it's a social relationship between people. Um, and there's all of these ways within capitalism, I think technology is a really good example of this, where the relationships between human beings are in fact mistaken for the relationship between things. Um, and that lets us then decide we're going to change the things, right? We're going we're gonna to regulate technology. We're going to 
We're going to regulate Facebook, mm. for example, mm. or we're going to regulate the blockchain, or on the to flip the coin, Bitcoin is going to save us all. When in fact, the problem is not Bitcoin or Facebook or the blockchain. The problem is our relationships between human beings and a society. And we have to change those. We can't change the individual technologies without changing the social relationships, or those technologies are just going to uh, come back and have the same effect. And Marx went through all this with money, right? So people in the 19th century, like Proudhon, had ideas for alternative kinds of money, which they thought would get rid of the oppression in capitalist society. And Marx has um, one full book about that, and then sections of other books where he totally demolishes that by saying, your understanding of what money is, is wrong. Money is a social relationship. Money is not an object that has its own properties and characteristics. It serves a purpose. It's not a thing of itself, yep. right? It's a, it's a, it reflects the broader world mm -hmm. and what we put into it. Yeah. So obviously the book is what we might call part of a growing body of critical literature that's emerging both on technology and I suppose there's an intersection of libraries and technology within that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? And I guess, why is it happening? Why are we talking about this? Why is critical librarianship? Why is Marxism and, you know, even Russell mm. Brand talks about it on his <laughs> podcast. So I guess there, there's a bit of an awareness. There's a growing awakening, if you will. So mm -hmm. I guess, can you talk about the intersection of, of this literature and why now? Yeah, I think, um, I think the intersection is uh, almost a consequence of... I don't think it's that the intersection is driving the critical literature. I think the critical literature and the critical discussions are letting us see the intersections that were all, always already there. So it, it's allowing us to sort of take a step back from dealing with Mark Records, for example, to say, well, how did Mark Records come about? And what are what's the relationship between systems departments and other parts of the library or other you know technology and other fields? So I think that, that what the critical discussion is doing is broadening it out and, and I, I mentioned this in the chapter that often Marxists are accused of bringing politics into a discussion that doesn't need it. Mm. Um, when what we would say is that, in fact, everyone else is just keeping politics out. The politics is already there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think critical librarianship is doing that, whether it's about technology or not. It's bringing in social justice issues. It's bringing in race, gender, um, power into discussions where traditionally librarianship has wanted to keep them out by saying, we're you know, neutral. we're neutral, we're, we, we have technical work that we do, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we're not concerned with any of those external things. The question of why now is a really interesting one. I graduated from high school and started university in 1995, four years after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the proclamation of the end of ideology and the end of history and the victory of capitalism over uh, socialism. So for me, the, the years that I was in my undergrad were years when you, you didn't talk about Marx. You didn't talk about socialism. You definitely didn't talk about communism. David Harvey, I think, uh, who's a Marxist geographer uh, and a commenter, commenter on Das Kapital, uh, I think really focuses on 2008, the financial crisis of 2008, as being the moment where that period of total capitalist victory where the cracks started to show, even for people who weren't looking for them. So um, Marxists and economists and other people on the left were still seeing cracks in capitalism between 1991 and 2008. But the crisis in 2008 was so bad, and the response of government and bankers was so poor to it, um, you know, the, the, the bankers couldn't even explain why it had happened, that I think 2008 is when we start to see a resurgence in interest in the works of Marx, a resurgence of interest in um, social movements. And I think on a material level, we haven't come out of that period of capitalist crisis. And in the States especially, it's that crisis that led to, for example, going to try and put this diplomatically, it led to, very material reasons, led to a situation in the States where black people could be murdered with impunity by police and led to the Ferguson demonstrations, for example, which I think has led to Me Too. That, that initial moment of Black Lives Matter has led to um, similar responses in different contexts 
throughout capitalist society, all because capitalism has not been able to to fix this crisis that is underlying it. And the theory piece sits on top of that. So the reason that we're now more interested than we were when I was an undergrad in these broad questions of social justice, of politics, of society and economics, is because we're living through a period of acute capitalist crisis, which has had real social and political effects in primarily the U.S., but in fact all over the world. I mean, that's the rise of the right throughout Europe, throughout the world, is because this crisis in capitalism um, let particular or finally forced particular demographics to realize that the victory of capitalism wasn't working for them, whether that's white working class voters who are blamed for Trump, whether that's people with particular grievances in Greece who have led to the rise of the far right there, whether that's people who are already at uh, pretty close to the wall in terms of standard of living in the U.S. who've decided they've had enough. So I think all those all those layers are connected. I would hope there's an awakening awareness and unrest. Mm. The question is, will it be some subsumed by capitalism as it has in the past? Or we're certainly seeing a l maybe because it's so much more shared and evident on sort of interconnected media mm -hmm. and and the web but it feels like there's threads of um, sort of unrest and awakening so that that's interesting that it's certainly coming out or you know publications or we're talking about in libraries and, and society yeah i mean the, it, we've been through this before we've been through this in 1968 we've been through this in um, just after the first world war um, so it's it's important to remember that this may not be the revolutionary moment. It's likely not to be the revolutionary moment, and it will be subsumed under capitalism, um, possibly as happened after the Second World War, by capitalism getting its act together and giving a higher share to workers um, to improve their standard of living enough that peace comes back, social peace. But what's more likely to happen, I think, um, is that... Uh, we're in for a major transition in terms of capitalist hegemony. So the American period is ending, and what we're seeing is the death throes of the American period of hegemony, and what's coming is probably a Chinese-driven uh, model of hegemony, which will have enough productive capacity to raise the standard of living so that there will be a period of social peace there. But as Marx points out in, in Das Kapital, crisis always comes back in capitalism, and it's always worse the next time. So, And we got here... Talking about library technology, so here we are. Well, I, I, I have a qu okay. Bringing it back to libraries and technologies. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about new technologies, and I mean that's kind of the the work that Lydia is doing, and the work that I've been involved in at the public library is like digital initiatives, looking at the new, looking at like AI or AR, and seeing okay how how is this going to apply? How can we integrate this? I guess questions I have are, do you think that librarians have a responsibility to be looking critically at those technologies and how, how do they do that? Mm -hmm. so, so do they and how do they are my questions. Yeah, I think they do. Um, I, I, think, I think more information and more ways of looking at these things is always better. So I think we do have a responsibility to look, at, to look critically at these things and especially at the consequences, the unforeseen consequences that they can have. How we do that is, is a bit of a more difficult question, I think about something like, um, you know, the Library Freedom Project, which besides the work that they do around Tor, has a very, you know, one of the things that they're constantly talking about is people should be taught how to encrypt their, their email and use end-to-end -end encryption and, and all sorts of other ways. So I think one of the ways that, that we can do this is almost similar to, to what we've been saying around fake news, right? is we're the ones who can provide context. We're the ones who can be saying, yes, augmented reality can do all this cool stuff for you, but remember, it's going to have these, these effects. And Facebook is actually a really good example um, where when I, I haven't worked in a public library in a long time, certainly not since before Facebook, but I imagine that um, when people were coming into the library wanting to use Facebook, 
there were discussions in the public library around, well, okay, how do we help people understand what the privacy risks are, right? That's ways that I think we can do that with our user base, right? Um, it's, I think, I think it's incumbent on us to be providing the kind of context to be saying um, these are some of the risks that can be associated with it. Internally, I think we have a much harder, we're going to have a much harder time of it because we're so dominated by particular ideologies and particular ways of looking at things. So when Greg was talking about oil workers using AR to have an overlay of work that they need to do, well, that sounds neat on the face of it. You can see it as a training thing. But a Marxist would look at that and say, well, hang on a sec. Once the person is no longer having to have the skill and memory to do this work on their own, once they're only following directions on a heads-up display in front of them, why would we pay them so much? Why would we pay them at all? Right? Like, the, the same de-skilling and deprofessionalization that's happened again and again and again to particular constituencies of workers is going to come to workers that previously felt they were protected. So it'll come to oil workers. It'll come to workers, intellectual workers or cultural workers like librarians. And I think that's where we're going to have the real fights within our organization is when new technologies, you know, we, we lost the fight over cataloging departments, but when new technologies come for newer, different constituencies of uh, librarians, let's say um, expert systems, for example, in artificial intelligence, what if we start having them teach uh, information literacy classes uh, or digi digital literacy classes. Once we, once we have start having them handle those interactions, and if we don't make the case that it's the human interaction that's important, if we say it's just the outcome, you can have a robot do it. And I think th that's where we're really going to have to be aware of what we, what the consequences are to these new technologies and what we want the outcome to be. So we don't want the roboticization of digital literacy training or information literacy classes to happen, then we need to start now in thinking about what those arguments are and how to marshal them. Perhaps foolishly, I tend to think of infrastructure building, and I realize it's unrealistic given that, you know, finite resources. When Jessamine West was here for our local, you know, Alberta Library Technology Conference, she had a good point, and I guess it relates in terms of Governments miss the boat on providing email to citizens because email as such a ubiquitous service is still f created by private companies. Mm. To some degree, we're having this discussion on Facebook and perhaps there'll be a separate episode just talking about Facebook and how um, so many people rely on it, like how necessary it is almost as identity management as everything. So essentially, we have very few infrastructures that are created for the public, by nonprofits, by governments, mm -hmm. because that's not our role to build infrastructures, to build those systems that are free of profit, hopefully take considerations of the values of a civic society, right? What's the purpose of, of, of living together in a world? So I realize I'm getting really vague with this, but you know, open source is one solution to this or, or one answer to tools, right? So this is where it comes back to library technology for me is, but we didn't build it, right? Ultimately, we do rely on someone providing that service. So it's, it's tough. It's just, I don't know. I think about that daily and I don't know, like I can't create it by hand as much as I'd like to, but. Well, and I think one of the reasons why I, I don't think there's a, there's a simple solution to the resistance question is that in fact, uh, the the space that we're in, the space we have for action, meaningful action in in these contexts is really small, right? I mean, we are very much dominated and overdetermined by capitalist infrastructure, capitalist logics, um, capitalist relationality. It's very hard to move outside that, um, and, and so I, I think you can't beat yourself up when when you aren't able to manage it none of us are able to manage it 100% of the time. Few of us are able to manage it at all. The important piece then is not focusing, again, on the tools or the particular technologies, but thinking about the relational aspects, right? Thinking about what is what is the human relationship that's going on here. And I think this is the counter to the... We need to... This idea, which is prevalent all through the technology world, but especially in open source projects, where we need to protect and flatter and maintain this guy, almost always a guy, in charge, 
even though he's an asshole and he's horrible to people because this is the only way that this product gets built, right? And I think what, what comes out of the social justice world is the product's not important. If, if the way you have to get there is by treating people like shit, um, then the product is not important. The means matter. The end isn't the only thing that matters. And I think it's the end result mattering, that, that measurable piece, that outcome that protects Harvey Weinstein, right? Um, it protects people like him because everybody's going to profit off of the product. What I, what I think is a big part of Me Too and a big part of Black Lives Matter and a big part of a lot of the social justice work that's going on in open source communities is saying the product is not more important than the people who are involved. And so I think it's just bearing that in mind, right, and trying to maybe live and work according to those principles that um, can at least maybe get us a little bit further forward. I'm hearing, like, booze from Silicon Valley right now. Yeah, like, well, <laughs> exactly. No, we're the saviors. <laughs> Everything we do is for good reasons. and Buy our product. Matter, yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter how we get there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess it's it's not falling for the the reification or fetishization of these products, right? remembering that they are products of social relationships, which I think is, I mean, that's what feminists have been saying for decades, and and we still haven't got the message in any kind of broad sense. Well, I think this was a very deep and <laughs> thorough discussion. It's certainly very rewarding um, to take that time to reflect, right, to understand how we're all sort of implicated in it, right? And so I appreciate you saying that as much as Lydia would like to solve it all and just like build that infrastructure, it's more than that. So of course I understand it. And so we, we really appreciate a chance to sit down and kind of Thank talk this much. out loud. Yeah, with you. Yeah, it was fun. Um, so yeah, thanks again.